You're listening to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast, episode 32, hosted by me, Robert Plotkin. Today I'm going to be speaking with Ted Meisner, the manager of online programming and community development at the Center for Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society, where he also teaches mindfulness-based stress reduction, also known as MBSR. Ted is also the host of the podcast Present Moment, Mindfulness Practice and Science. He's been meditating since the early 1990s and is the executive director of the Secular Buddhist Association and is active in the mindfulness community in many other ways. We're extremely pleased to welcome Ted Meisner to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. In the upcoming interview with Ted Meisner, we'll talk about many of the opportunities and challenges that technology poses for mindfulness education, both in person and online. For today's tip, I'd like to address a challenge that many of us have, which is not necessarily caused by technology, but can be exacerbated by it, which is finding the time to engage in mindfulness practice, particularly meditation, every day. So what I'd like to suggest is to set a ridiculously small goal of meditating for one minute a day. Now, you might think that's absurd, that there's no benefit to meditating for just one minute a day. Why would you do that? Let me give you at least two benefits that I've found. One is that by setting such a small goal, I've found I am much more likely to actually satisfy it. I can always find a minute a day to meditate. And what that means is I actually end up meditating every day and obtain the direct benefit of engaging in that practice, even if it's only for a minute. But at least for me, I gain an additional kind of a meta benefit of feeling good about the fact that I have followed through on this goal or intention of meditating. And that, I found, helps me to stick with it every day. Whereas if I had set the goal of 30 minutes of meditating and I then missed a day and another day, I know, and I know this from experience, would most likely end up feeling reduced motivation over time and I would let the habit slip. But there's a sneaky side benefit I've found in in my own experience to setting a goal of a minute a day, which is that in practice, when I sit down to do that minute, many times I actually end up meditating for longer. I actually have the time and the ability and the interest to meditate for much longer than the minute. And I've only found that that's true by sitting down to start with the intention of meditating for just a minute. And I know that if alternatively I had set the goal of meditating for 30 minutes, many times I probably would have not sat down at all. But I now know I often have much more than the minute, and I know that because I actually sit down every day with the goal of meditating for a minute. I am essentially tricking myself to sit down and get started which is the hardest part. Hope you find that helpful, and I hope you enjoy the upcoming interview with Ted Meisner. Hi, Ted, and welcome to the Technology for Mindfulness podcast. 
Hi, Robert. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's it's great to have you. And in thinking about you and your work in preparation for the interview, what really came to mind is that I see you as sitting on that edge between tradition and innovation. I don't know if that rings true with you at all. <laughs> that, that sharp and pointed seat. Yes. <laughs> yes <it does. laughs> Maybe it feels like a hot seat sometimes. <laughs> a bit, yes. <laughs> so uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what that experience is like to, to, if this is a fair way to put it, trying to remain true to the traditions of mindfulness as a practice and a way of teaching and being while bringing modern technology to it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's really an interesting intersection as you explore in, in this podcast and technology for mindfulness is that like so many things uh, that are taught uh, traditionally in an in-person kind of context, uh, anyone listening to the podcast think about just going to school and taking a class for most of us, that was done with a teacher sitting at the head of a room and a bunch of other students. Mindfulness, as you know, is a little bit different in that uh, often just the physical structure of an in-person classroom is different. We're often in a circle and there's uh, a bit less of the didactic and much more of the sharing and exploring of one another's experience uh, with mindfulness the practice and learning mm -hmm. about that and stress reactivity and all that good stuff. And now we have this thing called the internet that uh, neither you nor I grew up with. It's something that came along much later. In fact, computers were uh, first hitting the scene in a, in a more manageable way for the average user when I was in high school. And so how we see it today is that now there's been this tremendous opening of ways in which people might engage with a contemplative practice using technology. And of course, that comes with its own set of challenges. Uh, there are risks of the technology being the focus rather than the mindfulness practice. Um, but it also opens up uh, a world that otherwise people might not have access to. So for example, a uh, hundred years ago, if you wanted to learn about meditation, if you were very fortunate, there was someone nearby, physically, geographically nearby. And you'd have to go to that place. And if someone, that teacher, for example, gave a talk, typically it wasn't recorded. And so it was just a one-time thing. And you were with a group of people that might not quite be like you are. There might be a great variety of ideological views and practice experiences and things like that. And if you shift forward to today, it's, uh, it's a bit different. Uh, you can go online as far away as your laptop or your iPad or your, your cell phone even, and join a, a group of people that you see face to face. And you're all there with very specific and coordinated intent around a, a program that you may be taking. And it's recorded so that you have the capability of listening to it later. And with various and sundry apps, you have the ability to listen to experts from all over the world 
not only in a variety of contemplative practices and traditional backgrounds, but also different languages. And they're doing guidance for different levels of experience. So if you're a beginner, you can be with beginners. And if you have a bit more experience, you can be with others who are equitable in that. So to me, this is really opening up opportunity for those who may be either geographically limited, there's nobody nearby physically, they're ideologically limited, the local center might not quite be the setting that is a good match for who you are, Mm -hmm. or perhaps um, physically, uh, those who have some, uh, some physical impairments and can't really leave the house may also still have access to what everyone else does. So like you, I see this as a tremendous opportunity that, of course, comes with risks that are not unique to mindfulness. They're there in anything that might be having its intersection and its time with technology. Mm. Yeah, you you came back a few times to uh, opportunity and access, you know, and how much that's changed uh, over the last hundred years and certainly even in the last five or ten years. And I think it seems like you touched also on uh, flexibility or indirectly what you might call personalization, the ability mm-hmm. of people to find teachings that suit where they are at the moment and who they are. Could you right. talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, for example, if you use uh, any one of a number of apps that you and I would be v- very familiar with, Uh, let's say you're interested in just an awareness of breath meditation, just something to help with exercising your attentional capacity. You can find guided meditations that maybe you only have five minutes and that's all the time that, that you have available to truly dedicate to practice right now. It may be that you want to sit for an hour and have more silence and a bit less guidance. That may be different than someone else who 20 minutes and, you know, I'm new at this stuff. So I'd like a lot of guidance in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Compare all of those differences to someone who may be looking for uh, a loving kindness meditation or uh, mountain meditation or some guidance on mindful movement. So you can find all of that there of different lengths, different amounts of guidance, very closely guided or or maybe with no guidance whatsoever, and you're just looking for a timer with some nice bells. <laughs> All of that is available to you. Yeah, it, it's really incredible. I've personally experienced it. Uh, sometimes I'm looking for something to help me sleep or deal with stress. Or like you said, just the ability to pick the amount of time is seems like such a radical change. Right. From going to a center where the talks are (laughs) half an hour long, the meditation is half an hour long. Or if you go, it's, you know, you have 40 minutes and then 10 minutes of walking and then 40 more minutes of sitting that might not fit so well with what everyone's lived reality is for some folks. That's just not as approachable. And especially if you got to physically get there, that can be very difficult for, say, a single parent or someone who works second shift, and that's the only time that's available. This really, really opens that up for them. Yeah, it might mean the difference between doing that five minutes online or and doing nothing. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the the challenges or, or risks of this. Um, you know, another thing I've experienced is uh, 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 one flip side of the incredible amount of choice uh, sometimes is a feeling of being overwhelmed by the choice. <laughs> you have good news, there's an incredible amount of choice. I have bad news, there's an incredible amount of choice. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite books of the last couple of decades was The Paradox of Choice, which you know talks about this phenomenon exactly that the the freedom can be a burden uh, when you have too many options at your disposal. So I wonder if you could talk uh, a little bit about that and and perhaps how any of the work that you you are doing to bring mindfulness education online addresses this uh, abundance of choice. Oh, that's a Great question. So along with anything that becomes uh, very popular and very well known is that the general public uh, won't necessarily have an idea or a way to distinguish between a teacher who is really, really skilled and very competent. They've, they've done their, uh, their work and they're, they're really good at this and they've been able to maximize uh, the innate talents that they have with really good teaching and the integrity of what they're they're doing in their programs is really top notch. It's very hard for someone who may be a novice or even someone with a lot of experience sometimes to distinguish between that person who's someone you, you might want to get some long-term guidance in as a teacher and someone who's you know they did a, a half day weekend program and now they've hung out their shingle as I'm a mindfulness teacher and mm. they may be an an innately talented, really, really uh, skilled person who nonetheless, through an innocent lack of understanding, may be giving some guidance that could be harmful Mm -hmm. or the understanding that uh, mindfulness and contemplative practice is not, uh, it's not a panacea, it's not magic, and Mm -hmm. it doesn't cure everything. In fact, in some instances, it can be very harmful for people Mm -hmm. to engage in, say, an eight-week kind of mindfulness program. And so that's one risk is that there's so much you're not really sure what's out there that's uh, credible and and has the appropriate uh, boundaries in place for the the safety and the well-being of people who are participating in programs like this. Um, fortunately, what I've seen is a great deal of attention uh, lately, uh, thanks to the work, for example, the work of uh, Willoughby Britton uh, at Brown, doing just such outstanding work on, on this particular difficulty, or uh, David Trelevin and his uh, trauma-sensitive mindfulness uh, work and mm-hmm. book, which I highly recommend to people, that talks about why, although it may seem strange for for those who are very familiar with mindfulness and it's been wonderful for them to hear that maybe it can be harmful for some people Mm -hmm. and that Mm that kind of goes against the grain of but how is just attending to breathing for example harmful and of course there's a whole reasoning behind that and uh and that's one of the things that uh, education programs like the one i'm involved with at umass at the center for mindfulness that John Kabat-Zinn started the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program uh, about 38 years ago. 
we've really tried to pay attention to that and even updating uh, our own information about uh, what are the best ways to ensure participant well-being. Uh, and so when someone is looking for a teacher or program, um, what I would recommend in finding one that uh, has teachers who've been through this kind of uh, educational program that's not you know, just a short weekend program and there you are, you're a teacher, uh, take a look. Check out the, the website if they're affiliated with uh, some of the universities that are known for this. Uh, I know Leslie University, for example, has a, a, a master's program. Of course, my own UMass Medical Center at the Center for Mindfulness, UCSD, UCLA, their MARC program, of course, Exeter and Oxford and Bangor all have programs where they really tend to uh, what that last group formulated as the mindfulness-based intervention teacher assessment criteria by which these six domains of competence for mindfulness teachers uh, are very clearly articulated and, and very beautifully articulated and very consistently rated uh, in tests where they'll do a study and see, okay, if person X, Y, and Z are, are graded by different people using this MBI tack, as it's called, and the amazing consistency uh, that comes in those results. So checking things out, finding out where the person uh, got their credentials can be very helpful uh, in ascertaining, is this someone who I know yoga experiences this as well. People have been yes. training for years and have a uh, a really very strong training and personal practice themselves are in competition with those who, who are not. And through, again, often quite innocently uh, doing things that may not be quite as beneficial and sometimes could be even a little risky for participants in their programs as well. Yeah, I mean, some of what you're talking about uh, seems to raise another razor's edge, which is between uh, perhaps, um, let's call it mass distribution of of content, you know, pre-recorded guided meditations, which uh, are just what they are, mm -hmm. versus something that's personalized or interactive where there's a skilled, trained teacher who is able to pay attention to the student dur during their practice, perhaps pick up on ways in which they might be experiencing some harm or stress. I, I think one of the things you might be alluding to is, you know, there are people with uh, a trauma history for whom mm -hmm. deep breathing uh, may or may not be helpful, may be quite harmful. And uh, if they're listening to a pre-recorded uh, breath uh, attention meditation, and there's no teacher there to attend to them, right? There may be, uh, there's, there could be a risk there. Right. So this, uh, edge between teacher guidance, whether in person, uh, or remotely is another question, but teacher guidance and interaction versus someone receiving, uh, uh let's call it, uh, mass or one-size-fits-all kind of uh, uh, meditation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and, and how in your work you try to address this uh, tension? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I've done in my own uh, guidance recordings is in the beginning, 
there is uh, what is, is sometimes viewed as a, a bit of a lengthy <laughs> introduction. And the reason behind that is it talks about self-care uh, and finding what I was so delighted to see David in David Trelevin's book, I'm using the, the term uh, home base for attention. And so having a, a guided recording that has an introduction, particularly if it's a longer meditation, say like a 45 minute body scan, if there's at least a few minutes of that in the beginning that has some guidelines around if you begin to notice some difficulties, uh, some perhaps surprising uh, or or painful things are coming up, either physically or emotionally, here are a few things that you can do. And shifting attention, stopping the meditation entirely, doing something else, putting attention in another in another place until you get a little stability. And once that's set a little bit, tentatively exploring, continuing with the guidance and constantly checking in with yourself and seeing in a light way, uh, how am I doing? Um, so having that in the recording, particularly for longer recordings and rather than a, a five minute meditation, which might, I would expect in many cases, uh, be short enough that it, it can't really get deep enough to result in difficulty but for some people it will particularly it's the fir- if it's the first time they're trying uh, other th- other things that i would encourage people looking for as they uh, do some checking in this is as you look at the online materials for online programs for example uh, is there text uh, about this uh, window of comfort and and what to look for is there some guidance above and beyond what's in the recording? Is there also some printed material with it? And for the live classes themselves, uh, as as you know, I, I sent you a, a paper that I wrote on uh, mindfulness yes. programs. That there's a really quite a wide variety of what we mean by online programs, and that can range from a teacher sends you an email once a week. And that's it <laughs> for you in interaction with a teacher is you, you get some links to some stuff, you get a little information, but there isn't anything beyond maybe asynchronous typed text between you and a teacher and maybe no one else in the class. And let's call that one of the most basic kinds of online program to something a little more robust uh, where you might have some direct time with a teacher, at least audio. Uh, and then what I would call at least at the, the present time, more of a, a Cadillac program where you have uh, not only real time, regularly scheduled and long, so several hours of audio with a teacher and other participants, but it's also video. And for me, this is one of the, the very strong defining characteristics of a really robust online mindfulness program is that uh, seeing the teacher and the teacher being able to, to see the students and see how they're doing, uh, although it may seem to those who only teach in person that that's extremely limited, um, what I have found in several years now of uh, teaching mindfulness programs online at, at you know, the healthcare and, and the center for mindfulness and on my own is that actually that, um, that window kind of disappears mm. <laughs> and you have, uh, 
pretty deep connections uh, with participant with other participants, with the teacher and the teachers with students. Um, and the video part is very important, and it's extremely important because we are such visual creatures. So much of our communication is not done so much by the words, which may be one thing, but the body language, the expression, the tone is, is very different. So seeing someone is important. It also allows for uh, an in vivo uh, sharing and inquiry with the participant. So there's a back and forth and there's this uh, richness of the experience, even if you're observing uh, an interaction, it may also touch something in you as another participant. Um, so there are lots of different layers of this and lots of different um, uh, levels of maturity in the capability model of online programs as well. Yeah, it's very interesting. This last part you talked about uh, courses that have an online interactive video component between and among the teacher and multiple students because uh as as incredible as the variety uh of pre-recorded guided meditations are online once you're listening to one uh I, I often think it's not the experience itself isn't much different than what you would have gotten from listening to it on audio cassette back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a pre-recorded mm -hmm. yep. guided meditation. There is no interaction. It's one-to-one. -one, and one of the ones is not there. Uh, it's pre-recorded. Right. And uh, so now you're talking about a live class with a teacher, multiple students, all of whom can see each other and hear each other in real time. Uh, this must be, I assume, pretty recent. And maybe you can talk a little bit, you know, we've been talking mostly about what the experience is like for the students. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. But we could also shift to what is this like for the teachers to shift from their traditional method of teaching in person to teaching like this online? Yeah, and that's a great question. So in uh, just in my own experience, starting with uh, Adobe Connect uh, five or six years ago, uh, and my my colleague, Mark Nickelbein, uh, starting our practice circle uh, through presentmomentmindfulness.com and having that use video. So you'd, you'd see everyone in, in a grid, Brady Bunch or Hollywood Squares style, dating ourselves a little bit here. Uh, and, and that, that made a big difference. And one of the really big advantages and why we selected Adobe connect at the time now, several years ago, is that that also allowed us to do, uh, virtual rooms. So let's say you had a, a Brady bunch sized group of people. You had nine faces on screen. One's the teacher and everyone else is a participant. Uh, you as the teacher can now put people into little partner virtual rooms so that the screen changes and then it's just one person and another person. A much more intimate conversation can occur there. And so when you bring people back to the main room after a few minutes of whatever the topic is that they were talking about together, um, it's really interesting that the, the energy is very different. People seem a bit more 
uh, lively, in most cases, a bit more light. I usually hear laughter coming in as people are brought back into the, the main room with everyone else. Uh, and it's a very different experience as a teacher when you're doing inquiry. It's like, okay, so let's talk. What what has been happening with your practice this week? What have you run into? What was surprising? In a way, the the dyads in MBSR for an in-person class, this replicates that. It, it greases the skids a little bit in uh, getting those who might not be as, as comfortable talking to to enable them to speak up because they've been speaking in a, a relatively safe environment with another person. And I, and I would suggest even an extremely safe environment uh, is typically their own home, not always, but typically. And that's where most people are usually calling in from is their home. And everyone there is not experiencing the Oh, you know, after effects of traffic (laughs) (laughs) or, or the first day of class syndrome and not knowing anybody and all of that. So in some ways I find that to be extremely beneficial and very helpful. Um, but there are also some difficulties too. Um, as we shifted over to another tool, which was even more effective and and better at at, uh, managing bandwidth issues, for example, um, what we found is as I work with other teachers, is that a comfort with working with the technology was very important. Uh, And I've seen circumstances where uh, teachers have had difficulties with the technology and and it it showed because they're also seen, they're also on screen. And that tension can really strongly influence and perhaps not a, a way we'd always want to for a class. Their own tension is activating for all the participants. So very important for a teacher to be just seamlessly comfortable with the technology in using it. And it doesn't mean that problems don't happen now and then. Of course they do. And that itself is an opportunity to practice in the same way that one might uh, have a flat tire or run into traffic when going to an in-person class. So for for teaching and and Robert, as you know, I do both in person and uh, online live. Uh, I don't really find a great deal of difference in the effects of what participants get out of the class between the two. There's certainly different environments, and for those who uh, may be very uncomfortable with digital technology, it may be more appropriate to take an in person class because uh, traffic and driving and all that is less stressful than just opening up a computer. I totally understand that. And that's, again, it's simply another means for people to find the teaching and, and have access to it. Um, so that, that comfort level is very important. Uh, you and I have been working with computers and technology for a long time. So for us, this is, this is pretty secondhand. It's pretty, pretty second nature. We know how to do this. We're very comfortable with it. If things come up, we know how to deal with them in a very reflexive and mindful way while still honoring the experience of, of the participant in the class and ourselves. Um, where it can be a, a bit challenging is for those participants who didn't grow up with technology. Um, that can be challenging, but I'm finding that you know, even 
uh, younger participants in classes, for them, this way of doing teaching is, it's also second nature. I mean, this is part of the culture that they uh, were raised in. So they don't have, for a moment, of course, there are some exceptions to this, but they seem to really take to this very well. So it's just, it's not a question anymore about it. And I, I think about when cars were new, you know, driving that might have been very, very challenging for some who are used to riding a horse or walking. <laughs> driving a car was just way too much. Um, but for those who grew up driving cars, do you really think very carefully and strongly about every turn signal that you put on or turn of the steering wheel or gently applying the brakes or gas? It's, it's, you already have the reflexes in there. And so it's very similar with technology. Yeah, and it sounds the, like the experiences that you're helping to enable are ones in which you're you're facilitating people connecting with each other. That that seems to be right. a theme coming through here. That you're not turning over responsibility to the technology and however it happens to work. I know you put a lot of thought into what the experience is of, I was about to say users <laughs> as a default. <laughs> we can call it user experience. That's an accepted term. <laughs> but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit more about other ways uh, in which you, you've given thought to that and implemented it. We talked a little bit offline about things like uh, the app component. I mean, I've had the experience in various uh, courses, not necessarily uh, mindfulness courses, courses mm -hmm. where there's some part that's in person where you take the class and then there's some other part that's online and the teacher might give a handout with a link to a file or a video and send an email. And I've often found that as a student, the experience feels like the in-person classes are something that's totally distinct from the part that's online and they're not really integrated. And if I lose that sheet of paper or that email, I'm lost because it had some <laughs> critical information in it. And, you know, the, the whole experience of on and offline aren't really integrated with each other. And even for someone like me who is savvy, I've often found the amount of effort I have to put in again, to find that email the teacher sent before the yeah, course yeah. started is too much or it adds to my frustration instead of doing what I think it's intended to do, which is to make things easier. Right. Oh, this is such a wonderful question. And as, uh, as you know, uh, a lot of my, my background is I'm a, a corporate guy, a business guy from IT in very large companies. And a lot of that uh, had to do with user experience. Uh, because I was the the IT guy who would ask, but what does this mean to the user? Uh, instead of, ooh, what's the code for that? <laughs> right. It's a little bit, a little bit different. <laughs> and and that continues because you can have a, a really outstanding app that does this great magical thing, but if a, the person who needs it can't get to it yeah. or has a bad experience in getting to it and it's just so frustrating for them, they're not going to use it you've lost right. and it doesn't work. And really for a, especially for something as, uh, as refined an experience and often as challenging an experience as mindfulness can be, you really need to do your best to mitigate that kind of thing. 
So you mentioned uh, a very common experience of, ah, can't find that email and class is starting in five minutes right. <laughs> kind of thing. So one of the things that, that I've been doing in my own work and then also at the, at the Center for Mindfulness is having this awareness in how are people using the technology they have? What is it they're using? And so as you think about, a, a, for example, a live online class, it's important to be able to, to see the rest of the class. And so the encouragement is for people to use a, a computer with a full-sized screen to see everybody in the Brady Bunch and be able to distinguish between uh, you know, Mr. Brady and Marsha. <laughs> so you can tell who's who. Um, and yet... We also know from metrics uh, in the IT world that most people are now, for example, getting their email exclusively from their mobile device, their cell phone. Right. So, and, and that's not just for email, it's also for other things like social networking and stuff like that. So the expectation was, and we we did some, you know, these are not studies, you're just kind of asking people what is it that you use during the week? If you had some options about doing the home practice, uh, guided meditation recordings. And what, what I heard very consistently is over 90% in my own classes online. When I asked that, what are you using for the home assignments during the week? Uh, The device was my mobile device, my cell phone, right? Whether it was an iPhone or droid, whichever. Uh, and so the the challenge was, and I, I think we I met this in my own designs at presentmomentmindfulness.com and then at the Center for Mindfulness, we're using the same interface now that I built there, uh, that has all of it in one place. Mm. And it looks just fine and works the same way, whether you're on a computer or if you're looking at it through your cell phone, your mobile device. In fact, I say it looks a little bit better <laughs> on your cell phone because I know it's much easier for someone to plug in the earbuds to their cell phone and listen to the guided meditation, especially when compared to, well, the family computer's in the living room or it's in the office and there's not really the place for me to do the, you know, the lying down mindful movement, but it's much easier for people to, to do this with their cell phone. So the design includes access to the class. So there's no last minute, oh my gosh, I need the email. It's in the app. Everything Mm -hmm. you need is right there. There's no last minute. Oh, what do I need to do this week? It's, it's right on week three or week four or week five, whichever week you're in. Oh, you know, I need to get hold of my teacher because I, I, you know, I got to let them know I'm going to be a little bit like, oh, my teacher's email is right there. And I just tap that and it opens an email on my phone, which is what I use for email anyway, if I'm like most people. So um, really what we've tried to do is just on that basic level of putting everything in one place. So anything you need for the class is there and you may click on something that opens a new window granted, but it's, it's still all within one spot. And then making that as um, as simple and intuitive as possible so that the choices are things like join the live class when it's time to join the live class <laughs> each week. <laughs> that's exactly what it's called. Or um, if they, you want an 
overview of the class. There's that's one of the first thing that's on the page about it, and that has all the dates and logistic information. Um, so having it be something that is really very intuitive and simple, and and not so busy, it has so many choices that you can't find what you need to find. There are only a few choices on there because there only need to be a few choices on there. Yeah, I really like what you said about the, you know, we, we don't want the technology to make things harder, of course. <laughs> It'd be great if it make things easier. And when you mentioned, you know, the schedule being on there, how many times have I uh, attended a class or known of a yoga or karate class nearby and because of weather or the teacher's schedule or a holiday the regular schedule isn't being followed and right. how hard can it be to find that fact out <laughs> right right we were just talking today in in a meeting at the center for mindfulness about if we also used the web app that i built for our in-person classes how much easier it would be to have right on the web app if they're due to weather or some conditions, have something pop up letting people know that class is canceled tonight, right? Be next week. I, that's that's something we really should be able to do and enable pretty easily instead of oh, let's see, I gotta I gotta you know, find a computer and log on to this website and check this hidden thing. And then, right. then shows the skit instead of just hey, look at my phone <laughs> and it tells me, and that's a, I think an appropriate use of technology as a tool, because that's just helping you rather than uh, consuming your attention as so much digital media is today. Yeah. And just to step back, I know you keep referring to the Center for Mindfulness, and I'm sure people make the connection. Uh, but, but for those who haven't, we're talking about, uh, the Center for Mindfulness, which teaches and, and is probably most well known for mindfulness-based stress reduction, MBSR. I know among other things, but, uh, I don't, I don't know, and I'm, perhaps you do know the numbers of how many thousands of people over the years have gone through, uh, at least the basic MBSR course in person. Yeah, so that's, a, 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 again, a, another great question. We have had over, I think the current count is, um, I think it's 26,000 people. Uh, and there's, and I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head, I'll need to look at the numbers for you and get the updated information about those who've gone through our teacher training, teacher mm -hmm. education program and our MBSR teachers uh, and those we've, we've trained ourselves over the course of the past 38 years. So it's, it's difficult for us to get an idea of what the worldwide numbers are because we don't track of the thousands of people that have been through our teacher education program, all of their courses uh, of our certified teachers. Uh, it may be hundreds of courses just in the past handful of years, let alone the past nearly 40. Right. So worldwide numbers are really tough. Um, and for those who are interested in finding an in-person class, if that's very important to you, and that's fine, uh, just doing a Google search of your nearest city and the word and MBSR should bring some hits because it really is taught all over the world. And if you don't find anything close and convenient, 
I might know a place that does it online. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where I was going, you know, both for people who, uh, let's say, have gone through the basic MBSR course, did it in person, and perhaps uh, were under the impression, quite reasonably, that that was the only way it was still being done. I wanted people to know uh, that's no, no longer true. And uh, very, uh, there may very well be people who have wanted to take MBSR and couldn't or found it too difficult logistically uh, for their schedules or for travel reasons. And I wanted uh, them to know that the, all of the things you're talking about are, uh, I believe, are these all live now? Or are some of the features you talked about in development for MBSR? So everything I've mentioned, except what, what just came up today, I haven't built that tonight. <laughs> the mention <laughs> of closed classes for in-person. Uh, we do have that. So uh, we're just looking at our fall schedule as of this recording for 2018, our, our fall programs. Uh, we'll have, I, I believe, an even split of in-person and live online. So both options are available to you. Uh, one of the things that I really find wonderful about the online, and of course, Robert, you and I share this, so consider the source. <laughs> <laughs> this is something I'm, I'm very keen on. One of the really outstanding things to me as a teacher, and certainly to participants as well, they've expressed this, is in uh, just m m one of my recent classes uh, teaching MBSR, I had uh, nine different countries mm -hmm. and over a dozen different states in just the U.S. represented. And, and that was amazing because we had a, a world of time zones, which presents its own interesting nuances of course, there's extra information we have about, about time zones, but really everything I've I've mentioned, taking the full live MBSR course is something that we do online now. And you can take that from the convenience of your home or wherever you happen to be. So even traveling uh, for those who sometimes uh, have vacation or something comes up, a family emergency and they're traveling, but they really still want to be there for class. They can. Uh, and again, it's uh, not recommended as ideal, but in a, a situation that's just un uncommon. I'm traveling right now. I'm on vacation. So I'm going to use my cell phone to join the live class. There's still video. There's still audio. And that's, that's really amazing. It enables people to uh, do the full program where they might have missed a class or two which is, again, a, a wonderful advantage of being able to do this through digital technology and what that offers. Uh, but yes, essentially the entire class and everything that is part of a live MBSR class is also available online. Mm. Well, I just wanted to make sure that that people were aware of that uh, as an option. Of course, the, the live in-person class is still very much alive and available to people. Um, you know, I wonder if uh, we could take a minute to look to the future. I'm going to ask you to engage in what may, might be a little bit of speculation, but you know, you've pushed the envelope towards live online audio and video interactive classes. What 
what is in the works? What would be the next stage? You know, is it virtual reality, holograms? Or, you and, laugh. You and, say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I laugh and I'm, and I'm being serious. And, uh, you know, are there any, uh, do you foresee? I know there's always, of course, unforeseen challenges, but are there, are there either limits that you would see to, to the usefulness of the technology in terms of changing how a mindfulness education is delivered or, um, or just challenges in implementing it? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, we, we are living in the aspirations of just, you know, uh, Two years ago at the Center for Mindfulness, <laughs> the tools that we use at UMass at the medical schools um, didn't incorporate live video. Right. And so just being able to do that, uh, as our, our partners in IT that work with us on this said, yeah, this is five years ahead of what anyone else is doing here within our, our environment, within our schools. So we're already living that, which is great. And we've made significant improvements just with this, uh, this last two cycles, um, starting with the work that I did on present moment in, in design and making this an app and, and making that more useful that way, uh, an HTML5 app, a web app. Um, for what's coming for the future, as I think about things like, for example, uh, virtual reality, um, virtual reality technology is progressing tremendously. Um, I'd say there's uh, some sensibility and reflection about, so if you put on a headset and you're on a beach and it's a guided meditation on a beach, but really you're not on a beach, you're somewhere else. Is that being mindful? <laughs> because you're, you're sure. not in that environment. So one of my... Well, a few different thoughts on that. Um, and this is a conversation I, I had through email with a, a friend who is a very much an in-person teacher, and they're very concerned about online stuff. And they said, "But they're, you know, online. There's no, there's no environment. They can't connect with the senses." And I said, well, "That's not true. <laughs> they're, they're still in an environment. There's still sounds around them. You're still seeing. You're still feeling. There's still a sense of." smell and taste and touch all, all of the environment is there that you're seeing others on a window rather than in three dimensions is just a different dynamic of that particular kind of engagement so i'm uh, for a program uh for a mindfulness program i would i'm a, a little bit less disposed towards virtual reality with a couple of caveats that i think will be coming soon and I certainly, I, I, I'll say that now, if anyone comes out with that, you heard it here first, <laughs> is um, virtual reality going someplace else other than where you are, I don't think is inherently wrong or bad or to be judged uh, as, as not mindful um, for the simple reason that for some people, for example, someone who... Uh, is in hospice. This may be the only way in which they can uh, engage with the world. This is as close as it may be to someone who who can't move. Um, and so just taking the, the perspective that uh, individual experiences are extremely diverse and unique to that person. So it may be a tremendous boon to those who 
have other issues than what we might normally be experiencing in our lives might be a, a, a wonderful opening to practice for others. So what I expect we'll see uh, soon, and this is something I have I've brought up actually a couple of years ago and I want to see happen again. So you heard it here first, everyone on Robert's podcast is let's say you have a, a virtual headset and there's a planned uh, live broadcast. Maybe it's a recording. I imagine this would start as a recording where you put on the headset and it's other people sitting with you on that beach uh, and there's and there's a, a guided meditation, or maybe it's just a bell rings, and before you turn this on, you set the time. Maybe it's 20 minutes, and you're there, and the technology is such that it's on a loop, and when it gets to the 20 minutes, it closes the loop, and the bell rings, and that then shifts to the clip of everyone getting up and bowing and smiling and laughing. So I imagine we're going to see that before we see what I would expect as the next level, which is the VR headsets will get smaller. They'll probably be a bit more like glasses by this point. And you put on your VR glasses and your earbuds or probably something even <laughs> less uh, unsightly than that by this point. And you'll, you'll have the experience of being in an in-person class virtually. It will be a coming together of these two different aspects of live online and in person in that you'll put on the glasses and you'll be in the meditation hall at the Center for Mindfulness. And everyone else will be in the meditation hall at the Center for Mindfulness, even though they're in their own homes. And you'll either see them as, I imagine at first, avatars, um, but perhaps eventually those avatars will be uh, very close replications of you, that there will be a scan and then you're in. And so people see you as you and you do the guidance. And as you look across the circle of practitioners, you'll see the other people and they'll be seeing you too, even though you're at home. I think that will will come uh, and it's probably going to be a while. We'll have recorded things first, but eventually I would like to see that because it takes um, it takes a really big next step in how people connect. And as you said earlier, very insightfully, you're so correct. Uh, so much of this is about connection. So much of this is about just that human interaction. And at the end of a class, when people are like, well, what next? I'm going to miss you guys and all of that. There may be ways to much more easily facilitate people getting together even if they're in wildly different time zones. So that's why I'm very eager to see what comes next in technology and don't see it as, as something bad. And of course, like with anything else, um, people who engage with technology need to check in, see if this is doing what is helpful to you. Is it taking over or is it really facilitating your practice or is it distraction? And sometimes distraction is the right thing. That is what's needed. Well, that that's a great topic for another conversation about when can distraction facilitate mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you taking us out to that, uh, I don't want to say end point, but something that might feel very far away and that uh, might strike people initially. Uh, 
as being counter to mindfulness, but you know, making the case that if it's done uh, with the intention of facilitating connection amongst people, uh, rather than just using the technology for its own sake, uh, regardless of its impact on people, could actually be a tool that that facilitates mindfulness. It could be a technology for mindfulness. Right. <laughs> I agree, and there are those who are. Uh, dear to me, loved ones that I have only seen on a screen. <laughs> and so the level of connection that one can have is uh, maybe a bit more than people might suspect and still be every bit as true as those in-person connections we're, we're very blessed to be able to make when we can. That's really great. Well, thanks so much, Ted. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you, learning about how you are pushing forward that cutting edge of uh, of uh, bringing modern technology to the the teaching of mindfulness to spread it to more people uh, in more places, make it more uh, widely available to people, while while really staying true to the uh, tradition of mindfulness teaching. Thank you so much, Robert. It's been a- Great honor to be on Tech for Mindfulness. Really appreciate the work you do because, as as you know, it's uh, it can sometimes be an uphill battle about technology <laughs> and mindfulness. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here, Ted. Thanks for joining us for this Technology for Mindfulness podcast with me, Robert Plotkin, and today's guest. Ted Meisner, the Manager of Online Programming and Community Development at the Center for Mindfulness and the host of the podcast, Present Moment, Mindfulness Practice and Science. You can find out more about Ted at presentmomentmindfulness.com and at the Center for Mindfulness website at umassmed.edu slash cfm. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and share the episode with your friends. Those and all other links are in the show notes, and check out our blog at technologyformindfulness.com for information and tips about science, technology, and mindfulness. I'm Robert Plotkin, and I'll join you next time on the Technology for Mindfulness podcast.